Are you gonna? What are you doing? Sit down. We're recording. This week on the Eldritch Lawcast. Dwarfs in space, Ben. If you don't give it a name, we're going to give it a name. It came into being from a conversation that Matt Mercer and I had very, very early in the process. And the one place you couldn't visit was Baldur's Gate. You know, the supposed World of Warcraftification of D&D in 4th edition. <laughs> and just quickly, Taos saying in the chat that they're imagining Sean Merwin's face right now. D&D adventures are gross people. Randomly, I woke up this morning and now I can hide yeah. better than I could before. <laughs> uh, but I think random encounter tables are, are uh, a relic. All that and more right now. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Eldritch Lawcast, the number one tabletop RPG podcast in all the spheres. That's right. This podcast is the one that they listen to in every planar setting, whether you're on Planescape in the city of Sigil or you're on the Ethereal Expanse, this is the podcast they have blasting in their ears. My name is Ben Byrne, uh, joined as always by James Hake, uh, and we have joining us very excitedly as well this week. Well, we're excited. I don't know if she is as well. I assume she is. Is Luna LeBoffin. Luna, welcome back to the Lawcast. Hello. Thanks. It's great to be back. I'm glad that you're you're glad to be here because I'm going to immediately pepper you with questions. Uh, the first of which is uh, urban campaign or wilderness campaign. If you had to play in one or run one or the other, mm-hmm. what would you what would you prefer in that kind of binary choice? Can I pick like a small city? <laughs> Sure. Yeah. Urban campaign always. Yeah, because uh, my favorite thing is character interactions. And I feel like it's sometimes harder to generate those when you're running a wilderness campaign. And I ran Tomb of Annihilation and I think that scarred me for wilderness campaigns for the rest <laughs> of my life. So uh, right now I'm running a game that's like we go from one small city to like another one. And there's like maybe one day of travel in between. But like that's about it. <laughs> sure, that's fair. What? Because uh, I've had a similar experience with Tomb of Annihilation where it, it, they had gone sessions without seeing another social mm. person that they could talk to. And so I was just like, screw it. I'm just going to drop in the middle of the jungle a fey shopkeeper who's yeah. just like some creature who's who's got a dinosaur as their pack animal and they're kind of like this strange traveling merchant who sells to other fey creatures and other kind of, and the wizard that lives in the floating rock heart and all that sort of stuff. Um, how did you how did you cope? Why were you so scarred by the wilderness of? Oh, uh, I just didn't like the campaign. Fair. <laughs> 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 um, no, no, no. I mean, I actually think that first part of it was quite fun. That first like wilderness exploration stuff. But then we just got so um, ground down by the tomb. Like the, I, I've right. talked about it before um, in a video. But like, yeah, I ended up skipping basically almost all of the tomb and just going straight to the boss fight and then being like, we're never talking about this again. <laughs> <laughs> but the wilderness part was pretty fun. And, like, there are some really fun NPCs in that book. It's just, yeah, they're so spread out. Yes. Um, that sometimes it's really hard to to get them. Yeah, it leans very yeah. heavily on um, uh, Mike's uh, Sly Flourish's, like, guides that he wrote for right. Tomb of Annihilation. So gotcha. big ups for those. Yeah. Uh, James Hake. Oh, I love them both so much. It's why it's why Call of the Netherdeep has both in them, right? The big overland Lord of the Rings travel sequence and a big sort of metropolitan thing in the other half um but if i really had to choose it would be it would be the urban adventure um dragon heist is is such a uh like i i had the time of my life 
working on Dragon Heist because that's the sort of stuff that I love, right? Have a, have a neighborhood full of colorful NPCs the players can come back to all the time. Have all sorts of little missions that you can go a couple of blocks down and find, you know, an, 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 a, a totally different vibe in the next neighborhood over that has mm. uh, different adventures to do than the block you were just in, right? It's like in, in, in Tomb of Annihilation, right? You'll go 18 hexes east and you're still in the depths of the jungle. But if you're in Waterdeep or Baldur's Gate or something like that, then, you know, every neighborhood has a different feel to the one right next door. Um, I, I just watched a promo video that Larian put out for Baldur's Gate 3. Yeah, must have been yesterday. That sparked this question. Yeah, go yeah. on. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, they were, they were just talking about all the work that went into making that city. And that's kind of my caveat to it, is that as a DM, it's so hard to run yeah. urban stuff because, you know, they've got a whole team of expert game designers and, you know, uh, veteran D&D writers working on building out Baldur's Gate to have all of those densely packed encounters and highly varied like social ecosystems. And, you know, even with the aid of a book like Dragon Heist or something like that, you are still just a guy, you know, you're one DM running all of Mm. this. And so the pressure is really on to Mm. do it well. Um, So it's, it's not for the faint of heart, but I love it so, so much. Yeah, I agree. I've got, uh, they've just left a big urban sort of area in my campaign. They're wildernessing at the moment and then they're about to go into another urban area. And my answer to this question is generally like, whatever I'm not doing at the moment, because I tend to like, if I'm, if I'm in the middle of a city, I'm very much enjoying that, but I enjoy it most for the first, like, you know, 20, 30% of the time that I'm there and then I'll enjoy getting back out into the wilderness and being out on the road and being on my horse and, you know, tra- I'm, I've fallen into talking about video games, to be honest with you. But, um, uh, you know, going, but having the, that juxtaposition, I think, is really strong for fantasy games. But I am dreading them getting back into uh, an urban center because I think in a wilderness setting, you can kind of know which direction they're heading in and prep things that you can lay in front of them kind of either based on a choice that they've made and be like, okay, well, now they're moving in this direction. They're going through this area. I'll set it up like a big dungeon where each region is like a room of the dungeon and I only have to prep the regions that are sort of immediately in front of them and that's okay. Or if they're in a more kind of generalized, just a jungle or something like that, it's like, well, I can prep something and they can run into it in any direction. It doesn't immediately matter so I've got a little bit more uh, flexibility. In an urban campaign, it feels like you have to have so much more mm. prepped and ready to go or be so much better at kind of uh, being flexible with being able to invent things on the fly because you might have a party member go like, oh, I want to go visit the blacksmith. And it's like, all right, well, I have this blacksmith prepared or a blacksmith's not too hard to come up with. But what if they're like, oh, is there someone in this town who sells arcane runes that will allow me to teleport into another domain, you know, or something kind of off the wall like that. And the DM's like, man, I really, it, w- it would have been good <laughs> to prep this NPC, this colourful, interesting person. Um, but now I guess I'm going to have to try and put something together. Yeah, it definitely is more challenging in that respect. Like where my game is currently in Waterdeep, so at least I can like go to the wiki. But like I kind of invented a bunch of, you know, places that are relevant to the characters. And so they get there and I'm like, okay, so you could go to the university. You could go to the like the secret hideout. And I'm like, I don't know which one you're going to go to. And I feel like it's they're all so big. Uh, It's a lot of work. We're on hiatus at the moment. So I'm like frantically prepping (laughs) in the downtime. That's 
that's honestly what I think I'm going to have to do is go on hiatus for a couple of weeks just to give myself that time to feel like I've at least got a foundation of the city that I can kind of work with um, so that I've got, you know, regions kind of planned out, um, that I've got basic kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for, like utilities worked out, you know, the blacksmith, the tavern, the castle, the, you know, the general kind of stuff they'll want to visit. And then at least kind of two or three actual explorative locations like a sewer or a mage tower that's in the center of the city or or a ruined building that nobody's explored for a long time or something on the outskirts of the of the city because i find actually finding adventures can be the hardest part of of running an urban campaign is is making it feel like an adventure and not just a session of walking from one shop or one social encounter to the next to the next to the next to the next but yeah speaking of cities uh Baldur's Gate uh, got shown. Uh, it kind of surprised me. I had to double check this with Dante this morning. Uh, Baldur's Gate, the three, the video game, which has been in early access uh, for two, three years at this point, and the one place you couldn't visit was Baldur's Gate. Uh, well, you will be able to on August 31st because uh, that uh, is when the game is launching uh, this year, and uh, it looks really nice. Did you watch the video, James? Did you? I'm psyched. I, I have not really felt the hype for Baldur's Gate 3 because I've kind of forced myself not to. I really did not. I, I don't like early access for whatever reason. I feel yeah, like me neither. I, I, I like to see it when it's done um, because otherwise the first impressions, I guess, matter to me a lot. And so I want the best possible chance at a good first impression. Uh, and wow, it looks cool. Like it's gorgeous for one. Uh, and... It, it just makes me think of, like, my first time playing Dragon Age Origins, except, you know, in the modern era. And I love, mm. I love that, that sort of style of play, and I've not played a lot of RPGs like it, so... Mm. I'm I'm kind of a Baldur's Gate newbie, but I, I couldn't be more hyped. Yeah, I wish... I think it looked... Yeah, same. It looks really good. I've I played a little bit of the early access. Um, not very much, uh, but... And like my thing is, is that I, it looks really exciting, but I also know in my heart of hearts, I don't have much time for playing games, and it's such a huge oh. game that I don't know if I'll ever get really a chance to play. But I um, bought my pitched with some friends and bought my husband the like special uh, limited edition that comes out August thirty first with like the statue and the maps and all the cool stuff. So <laughs> I'm very excited for all that to to rock up. But yeah, the city like the graphics look so good. Like I'm really hoping that that's what holds up in the actual gameplay because it looks incredible. Like yeah, and just the idea that you can talk to pretty much anyone and, um, yeah. yeah, it's it's very cool. I can see many hours sunk into just, like, walking around, finding little stories. I feel like the, the marketing hasn't focused much at all on the Mind Flayers recently, but I saw that Mind Flayers statue and they're, you know, they're my favorite D&D monster. And it's yeah. like, ah. Yeah. <laughs> you know what kind of messed me up a little bit in that trailer was seeing mm. like the beholder or I think it was like a, a spectator technically or what, what are mm. they called? The little four-eyed beholders. Yeah, the spectators. Like as a trophy kind of tied up onto a onto a wall and his eyes are like looking like a dead creature. His eyes are like looking off in a weird direction. I'm like, that's kind of like weirdly graphic. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that put me off so much. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's pretty gross. <laughs> but well, the, uh, yeah. the adventures are gross people. <laughs> yeah, for the the mind flare where like they you know show the getting the tadpole eyes and stuff like that freaks me out. Ooh, mm, that was like yeah. super gross too. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Dante's been trying to get me to play Baldur's Gate 
um, collective, like sort of in a group uh, for the last maybe six months. He's mentioned it a few times. And I, 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 I was keen, but then I was like, ah, playing group games, you know, like while I, I, um, I really enjoy playing uh, video games collectively with other people. You know, I played Overwatch for maybe a year and a half, the, the first one, um, and have gotten into team games every now and again. But they feel like a bit of a commitment, you know, to be at, like, it's like having a D&D game, you know. And at the time I was like, I think I'd just rather play D&D uh, at, at the table with a group if I'm going to make a, a Thursday night commitment or whatever. But this trailer, like same to you, James, I was – it reminded me of like walking around in Oblivion, walking around the Imperial City for the first time, or walking around Novigrad in The Witcher and just mm. finding all the nooks and crannies and the different quests and stuff. Uh, the the city of Baldur's Gate looks um, incredible. I really want to recommend, I'm going to keep beating this drum, but you should try playing Deep Rock Galactic at some point. Okay. Then. It's a really good group game. Uh, it's about dwarves in space, up to four players. It's pretty fun and quick. Too, so it's not like you're dedicating your whole Thursday night to it. Yeah, gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I've, I keep hearing that. I don't know whether it's you mentioning it or I've heard it elsewhere as well, but I keep hearing that name. So I've definitely beat that drum a couple of times. <laughs> you're on just this whispering show, but... into his ear. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I should have taken my house key back. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah, it's really fun to play in multiplayer, but, yeah, it's, it is hard to commit that time. That's why I gave up on, like, a lot of multiplayer games because I can only put in, like, maybe an hour a week and then I come mm, back and everyone sure. else has put in 18 hours or 20 hours yeah. and I'm like, well, I'm really far behind now. <laughs> That's the thing about Deep Rock is that, like, getting really far behind in level or whatever doesn't doom you. It's still pretty pretty even in terms That's of, good. like, how, cool. how getting overgeared works. Mm. Anyway, that's, that's enough th- deep rock out of me. <laughs> yeah. That's the other thing, though, is like I'm, I'm so I really want to be. I'm longing to be just completely immersed in a mm. big fantasy RPG, like with The Witcher, like with Skyrim or Oblivion before it. Um, in fact, so much so I went and bought uh, the first Fable because uh, there was a trailer for the new one of those coming out, which honestly I didn't think looked that great. It was a little. Not at my alley, but I went and downloaded the first one because I was like, man, I haven't played this since I was like 14. Anyway, uh, enough video games because this is not the number one video game podcast in all the spheres. This is the number one uh, tabletop RPG podcast in all the spheres. So we've claimed music, sport and video games now uh, as coming under our umbrella. And speaking of a place where all things can exist, uh, the Ethereal Expanse campaign guide Kickstarter is launching, I think, in about... 12 hours from now-ish, or maybe like 13 hours from now-ish. It'll be 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's midnight uh, Australian time. That would make it, I'm going to say, 7 a.m. Pacific Standard Time off the top of my head, James. You three hours behind the the East Coast? Yeah. Nice. Got it. In one. Anyway, if you're listening to this on YouTube or anywhere else, the uh, Kickstarter will have started by now. If, James, you point up and sort of off to your left a little bit, um, there'll be a link. Yeah, I reckon in that direction up there if folks want to check it out. Um, uh, go take a look at the Kickstarter. In episode 85 of the Lawcast, we did a bit of a deep dive into the campaign setting. It's uh, Well, James, give me, give me the quick elevator pitch uh, just for folks who may not know about the Ethereal Expanse. Oh, the Ethereal Expanse. It's a swashbuckling adventure and campaign setting that is, uh, takes place in the astral plane where great age of sail sailing ships ride through silvery seas in search of 
treasure and adventure. I'm trying to see how far I could get that S alliteration to carry me, but <laughs> uh, there's there are great conflicts between pirates and empires, between uh, lost civilizations of planar travelers and the monsters that they've left behind. It's uh, it's basically as high magic as you can possibly go, uh, and yet it still feels grounded and fun. Uh, it's 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 to me kind of the 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 logical conclusion of the D and D genre with all of the magic and heroic adventure flying around and so i think it's a it's an excellent fit for for any campaign uh, somebody asked is this the spell jammer book everybody wanted in the chat <laughs> yes and <laughs> I, I think it is i mean it's got me and i'm not a fan of spell jammer because when i saw that spell jammer trailer a year ago and 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 whenever i've been exposed to spell jammer it just seems like a conglomerate of everything so you know we've got giant hamsters and we've got vampires that are pirates and we've got this and we've got that and the ethereal expanse can have that as well but as james just said it feels grounded i don't know if grounded's the quite the right word but i know what you mean it it feels real it feels like it's got a an identity of its own that's not just kind of everything thrown in together it's got a a visual language it's got yeah. a it's got it's got factions that are you know conflicting over it and yet there's so much room for extra things to be added into it as well. Well, yeah, and, and I don't want to slag on Spelljammer because I like Spelljammer well enough, but sure. it's a, it's sort of a B movie pastiche. The Spelljammer is is a genre pastiche whereas Ethereal Expanse is, you know, it, it's it's a heightening it's, it heightens all of these genre tropes to their logical endpoint. And how far can we stretch this and still make it cohesive and mm. and have a have a story that's resonant, rather mm. than being and now this planet's gonna blow up and the the space clowns <laughs> are coming to salvage us. You know, it, it, they're two very different campaign tones. But the serial expanse is one that you know is is near and dear to my heart and, and to yours too. I was just gonna say, like, I haven't um. Read a huge amount, but we did do that Ethereal Expanse game at PAX last year. Mm. And just um, reading the the setting stuff that you provided for that game, it was just, so, it felt so, like, lore rich. Like, I just felt like mm. there were so many little nuggets in the little descriptions of, like, oh, that sounds so interesting. Like, oh, I want to read more about that. And then there would, you know, maybe be expanded or maybe not. It would just be, like, a fun little thing that you would throw together. And, um, yeah, just the artwork for it is gorgeous. Like, I, I think it's amazing. Yeah, I, I love it. I'll be back in the Kickstarter. I'm excited. And and the Ethereal Expanse campaign setting book is going to be all that, but you know, now with more room to dedicate to it, right? Because the mm. fir- the the Fable Fables season two Pirates of the Ethereal Expanse that was that was an adventure. And it's a huge adventure, right? It's something like you know 400 pages or something of adventure. Mm. Um, that I don't know. We're going to make it available, more available in some way, shape, or form. I'm not privy to that information yet. Uh, I'm sure, but. Uh, the campaign setting book is going to be taking the something like 80 pages or so that we made out of the first episode of that fable that is kind of just like a, a palette palette wetting primer and we're going to spin that out into a full size campaign book so there's going to be more info on all the factions we're going to get more detailed looks at all the islands in the expanse uh more more on the gods and their role uh, one of my favorite parts of the original campaign setting is how all the different cultures kind of had different views of the four constellation gods than the expanse. 
That's what uh, grounds the setting so much for me, honestly, mm. is the, you know, because in the real world, religion and faith is this kind of slightly fluid um, concept where it cha- everybody has a different interpretation. Um, everybody, you know, even within the same religion, uh, you know, can see the word of, of, you know, God or the gods in a different uh, context and they change over time, you know, the right, especially um, as Dale would be able to attest to if she was here. Um, the, the way that the roles of the Greek gods kind of changed throughout the very long history uh, of Mesopotamia, Greece, into kind of more modern ancient Greece. Modern ancient Greece, there's a, a juxtaposition for you, oxymoron. Um, the point being that, like, as soon as you make it feel like um, that there's room for interpretation and anything could be real and there there is a truth in there, there is something, there is a nugget of truth somewhere in there. Someone might have it completely right or it could be a mix of everybody. Anyway, I'm kind of uh, nattering on it here a little bit, but that's that's what I loved <laughs> about it. That's what really grounded the setting for me. Well, that's the thing, you know, uh, Ben, your taste in fantasy is so, it's, it's so geared towards dark fantasy and grounded, gritty uh, stuff like that, you know, not necessarily hard realism. There's some room for heroics in there too, but there's there's a very sort of grounded, weighty gravity to what you like to play. And mm. the the thing that amazes me about all the writers who contributed to the ethereal expanse setting, you know, you know taking taking from my original outline and spinning it off into these five huge adventures, is that even as they went huge and swashbuckling and even got kind of pulpy at times very sort of errol flynn swinging around kind of star wars with the big imperial vessels even as all that was happening even as like you know death gods were rising from the sea and meteors stars were falling from the sky uh you never lost a sense that it's a real place you never lost the appeal that it would have for you know uh, a really grounded sensibility like that. So. We we just I did a video where, uh, you know, the creativity of everybody who's worked on the Ethereal Expanse, whether it's in season two or season three of Fables or, or um, you know, James, Joe, uh, Rasso, kind of clashed with my darker sensibilities when I was like, yeah, but what if you made it cosmic horror? And what if they're like discovering islands of, you know, invading biomorph type creatures <laughs> that are going to try and escape the island and spread out over the across the rest of the ethereal expanse or you can run political intrigue style campaigns like arcane where you know the 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 surrounding uh visuals are incredibly beautiful and incredibly vibrant and yet the conflicts are incredibly real and have high stakes and 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 um uh have a real gravity to them not to overstress the word or you can do swashbuckling adventures or you could do like star trek style like Mm. exploration adventures where you explore the different planes that are uh ancillary to the uh ethereal expanse that's a really good topic you bring up ben because pirates of the ethereal expanse you were pirates right this is a big adventure where you took on the role of pirates this setting book uh is not going to dictate that role for you, right? There are mm-hmm. many different factions here. There's the, there's the Isle of Drakes, the pirates, of course. There's the Caroline Empire, which were the big bads in pirates, which were kind of uh, kind of the good guys, kind of the bad guys in Fable Season 3, Agents of the Empire. And there's also the uh, the Kingdom of Eris, which is more mm-hmm. of a mercantile Venetian sort of, you know, Dutch East India Company thing. Um and of course, there's tons and tons of people who just live within the expanse. 
mm-hmm. whether they're astral merfolk or uh, or settlers from one of the different factions or uh, astral emergents that have crawled from the sea. Uh, the opportunity to see the expanse from a variety of different angles is going to be very much there in the new book. Oh, mm. and uh, it's not going to require that you have any knowledge of Fable Season 2. Uh, the yes. setting book is going to be set uh, before that adventure. So uh, if you want to pick up that setting book, <laughs> I say that now, that might change as the book develops. But right now, the book is going to be set before Fable Season 2, Pirates of the Ethereal Expanse. So you don't have to know all of the wild sort of political changes, uh, sort of almost like apocalyptic threats that go on during that adventure. You can start wherever you want to and kind of borrow from the fable as you mm. as you see fit. I think it's funny because I talked about how I really prefer like an urban setting earlier, but I feel like for this kind of uh, setting, an explorative kind of game would be so fun because I think what really did strike me, especially it really helped by the art, but like the, yeah, the aesthetics of the setting is just so beautiful. Like in my mind's mm. eye, obviously it might not be the case for everyone, but like just based on what I saw in the art for the book and uh, for the fable and um, that stuff, it just seems like there's so many cool things to find. Um, mm. And I, I like that idea as well because it's it would be kind of like traveling. If you're going island to island, it would be kind of like traveling like from small settlement to small settlement. So you could still have that kind of more urban feel, um, but then you might have drastically different kinds of places because you've, you know, maybe you hand wave three days of travel or maybe you put a couple of encounters in here, there, here or there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've mm-hmm. never run a like sort of uh, ship faring kind of adventure before. So that would be fun to try. I've, I've always just wanted more setting books because uh, sometimes I feel like, you know, especially with um, a lot of wizards material, like a lot of it is built upon, you know, decades of lore that if you're mm-hmm. coming in a fifth edition, you're not privy to. So like while Beyond the Witchlight talks mm-hmm. about all these fake courts, but you don't get any information about that stuff. I'm like, I want a setting book that gives me all of those details so that, yeah, I can take that information and then build from it. So, yeah, I'm excited to just, like, have a book I can read, like, cover to cover, and it's going to give me, like, a lot of juicy stuff. You know? Do you generally, that's kind of sparked a question for me, which is do you generally prefer, and it might not be a straight up, you know, either or answer, setting books or adventure books in terms of are you the sort of GM that would prefer to have a setting book that you can then spin your own adventures from or an adventure book that kind of gives you the concrete parts of an adventure and you can kind of fill in the blanks from there. Um, obviously, it's probably a balance between the two uh, from what you've just said, but, like, do either of you have a preference between those two style of books? They're both good for different reasons. Wizards' recent f- approach in 5e where, like, setting books and adventure books are combined is an interesting one, but uh, I tend to find that the setting material doesn't quite go deep enough for my taste. And generally, when I when I run D&D campaigns, I do one of two things. I either take an existing adventure and I crack it open and use it as an ingredient, or I'll just make it from scratch anyhow. So I think broad strokes, the setting book is more useful to me. Yeah, I would feel the same. In fact, actually, I've got it right here. Um, uh, get it from your local gaming store, folks. Um, but Taldor Reborn, uh, which obviously yeah, you worked familiar. on, Jays, um, is like one of my favorites because it has so, such so many interesting details about all the different locations, but then it will have like a couple of sentences of like, here's an adventure you could run in this setting. Yeah, right. It doesn't give you any details about how to run that adventure or anything like that. It's just an idea. And um, yeah. I find that to be the most inspiring because then I don't feel, I sometimes I feel in adventures or modules, I feel stressed about how I'm going to get them from here to here. and 
uh, when you just sort of have some more like little disparate things that you can piece together yourself. I mean, yeah, it's not for everybody. And there have certainly been adventures I've run from modules that I've really enjoyed that kind of A to B process. But yeah, anyway. Those adventure hooks, those came uh, came into being from a conversation that Matt Mercer and I had very, very early in the process where I think we both had this idea that this would be amazing. I think years later, I mentioned this on Twitter and Cam Banks, who worked on Dragonlance books in third edition, pointed out, you probably first saw this in this Dragonlance book. And I was like, I first saw that in this Dragonlance book. <laughs> Uh, which just goes to show that uh, Dragonlance did it first. <laughs> you can you can say anything, and Dragonlance will will have done it first. <laughs> well, speaking uh, of amazing things, uh, we talked about Baldur's Gate. That was next on the run sheet. But what we didn't yet talk about is: uh, Did either of you get a chance to see uh, the D and D video that got released? I think just on the Dungeons and Dragons YouTube channel this time. It's another uh, J. Craw uh, conversation talking about kind of more generally the future uh, of D and D as a game. And I liked this video because it was only twelve minutes long, not like half an hour or an hour, which some of the past ones have been. But it was super dense with uh, conversation points, uh, which I feel like some of the previous videos weren't, uh, maybe because they were going into more specifics around stuff. Um, uh, I've got a bunch of kind of uh, paraphrases. They're not really direct quotes, but kind of things that were said uh, that I want to go through. But did anything jump out at either of you first if you got a chance to see it? I did not see this video. I didn't even know it existed, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) It did kind of sneak out, to be Mm. fair. Yeah, I watched it yesterday and um, I did... I, again, because um, we're all home sick, so my kid was, yeah. like, talking in my ear. So I'm sure I missed some details. But I, the thing that jumped out at me the most was just the doubling down of we're not going to give it a new edition name. And then I scrolled through the comments and every single comment was like, if you don't give it a name, we're going to give it a name. And I just think, <laughs> <laughs> I just, yeah. I, I, it was actually really interesting to hear Jeremy Crawford talk about why they're not giving it a new edition name. And I think there was some really interesting things that jumped out of that that felt like there was talking around the reason, which is basically yeah. like they don't want to scare people away and have them stop buying releases that are still coming out. But yeah, he yeah. he basically said we're not changing it because five E is still selling. Um yeah. you know, so <laughs> I just thought that was that, that's what jumped out to me the most. They're like, they're really go they're really doubling down. <laughs> These videos are um and just quickly Teos saying in the chat that they're imagining Sean Merwin's face right now. And I agree. I agree. <laughs> it's a shame that uh Sean couldn't make it to this week's episode because I was looking forward to his commentary on this. But um, this video felt very honest. Um, and yet there's a little bit of reading into it that you can that you can definitely do here. Honest in the fact that exactly as you just said, Luna, they 5e is still popular. We we don't want to mess with that, you know? In the rock and a hard place that we're between of refreshing the system and not scaring away, uh, you know, refreshing to avoid stagnation and not uh, scaring away potential new customers or recent customers that have uh, already bought in. We're, we're trying to hit the middle of the line, uh, middle of the road as much as possible. But then talking about like part of the purpose of the uh, Unearthed Arcanas over the last 12 months have been to gauge the community's appetite for sweeping changes and for, um, you know, how much do they want things to change? What do they like to stay the same? 
Um, or do they like the changes that are being implemented or do they not? And moving f- uh, forward with some of those changes and moving back on some of those changes, depending on the temperature uh, of the community on each specific change. Um, which my cynicism, if I may, for half a second, says maybe they wanted to do bigger changes initially and decided not to given the feedback. And so now they're saying, oh, you know, we, we wanted to test. And I'm like, did you or were you actually wanting to push these changes through? Who knows? You know, you can take uh, Jeremy on his word or you, or you can be a cynic like me. But um, <laughs> uh, but also talking about how 5e is going to be the addition for the next 10 years mm. was, you know, uh, I, that wasn't like the announcement. Jeremy Crawford didn't say, and we're announcing that 5e for the next 10 years. But I think at least on two occasions within that video, he said, we are setting up the game for its next decade. We've just seen its last decade from D&D next to now, and now we're setting it up for its next decade. So there are like zero plans ostensibly, which may change for any sort of large scale refresh of the rules whatsoever, it seems. I think that's for the best. Um, 5e is a very successful addition. Um, and it, it's it's clear that if D&D wants to branch out into other types of gameplay, they're able to do that, right? Uh, we saw we saw the betrayal at House on the Hill, co-branded like D&D expansion betrayal at Baldur's mm-hmm. Gate. That's a different style of gameplay. We've seen a lot of D&D board games coming out recently, including one one new one that kind of what was there's there's a new giants uh, slayers of Herald of Anam, something. Like, there, there's a big new giant themed D&D board game. All uh, right, yeah, coming yeah, out. yeah. Um. And so if if we want to have, you know, D&D with different play styles, we don't have to look far to find it. And if they want to stick with this this core of 5e that that works so well for the next 10 years, I don't I don't think that'll be a problem for anyone. <laughs> It'll be a problem for, for for a lot of people on the internet as we've seen <laughs> and as I'm sure we'll continue to see, but I I think for for reasonable people who want to play some D&D with their friends, I think making a making an enormous change in the way that say third edition changed to fourth edition, uh, they they they've learned well. They sure. won't do something like that again. Uh, Jeremy talked a little bit about like what these books next year, these core books, uh, the twenty twenty four rule books as they refer to them internally, will contain, and it kind of sounds like maybe it's largely just going to be a consolidation of the iteration that 5e has experienced, particularly over the last five years between Tasha's and I don't know, that's the first one that jumps into my mind, but you know, where they've dropped like new classes or um, new species options or, um, and they kind of then consolidate those uh, into, you know, they consolidated two books into Mordenkainen presents monsters of the multiverse as well as picking up a lot of the different species that they had dropped in different books along the way, including like the Heragon from uh, Tales Be- uh, Beyond the Witchlight. Is that what that book was called? Um, so I'm wondering if that's what these these future books would would contain. What would you want to see in them? Like what specific thing did you think was a really cool change that they made that you would like to see in these new four books? Um, well, I mean, I'd just love to see the Artificer in the Player's Handbook for one. It's it's a popular enough class. People love it. It'd be great to see that in there. Um, I think there there are some subclasses from later books that I think deserve a place in the player's handbook as well. Um, though I I admit to drawing a blank when I'm trying to think of which precise one I would want to have in there. Um, sure. Like, wait a second. Uh, like 
Oh my god, it's on the tip of my tongue. Uh, I, I would love to see the Hexblade Warlock in the player's handbook, to be honest. Yeah, okay. Uh, just because there's a variety of reasons. I don't want to get too in the weeds here, because we could debate the minute mechanics of a 5e refresh all day. But uh, the poor Pact of the Blade just don't do too much without a Hexblade attached to it. It's kind of Yeah, sure. And I want, I want the core of 5e or, you know, 5.5 or whatever it's going to be. I want that core to be as solid as possible. I want people to not just be able to pick up the player's handbook and play the game. I want people to pick up the player's handbook and feel like they, they have uh, the most fundamental version of the game, the most usable version of the game. If they need to supplement that usability with things like Xanathar's or Tasha's or something like that, then, then I feel like the refresh has missed the mark. Those splat books should be fun additions, not patches to things that need to be mm. in the game. I feel like there was a lot of excitement around Xanathar's when it came out because I think that's more what that felt like, at least to me, from a player's perspective. Because largely, I think the new things that were in Xanathar's was the subclasses and the spells. They're the things I think I opened Xanathar's for the most, if not the names at the very, very back for for naming NPCs. Um, but then Tasha's felt like it was you know, in quotation marks, fixing things a little bit more because it was mm. introducing optional class features and a new way of uh, attributing ability scores. Uh, Xanathar's was not free from those fixing things. The uh, whole crafting economy exists yeah. in Xanathar's yeah. Yeah. after a really weak outing in the core books. So they're going to continue releasing these Unearthed Arcanas. The next one I'm a little bit gun shy of because uh, just very casually, Jeremy Crawford mentioned uh, that it will be experts and priests and taking him at his word. That sounds like it's going to be a dense document if they're doing like that's like six classes or something. I think the monk is coming in there because he also mentioned the monk is coming. We haven't seen the monk yet. And I think the monk, one of you can correct me or the chat can correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like I heard the monk being referred to as a priest at some point, not a warrior. Am I making that up entirely? I can't keep you honest on this, Ben. I've got no idea. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I have not kept up with the honest arcana, so I could not say. I, I, but it's definitely either an expert or a priest. I can't imagine the monk being a warrior. It's one of those two, though. Well, the reason that confuses me, although may- maybe there's an explanation for it, may- uh, is that they talked about wanting to like uh, de kind of de uh, stereotypify the monk away from mm-hmm. sort of like Eastern culture that it that it sits very strongly in at <laughs> the moment. And we're the Asian class, yeah, um, exactly. yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> um, but if you want to kind of get rid of that that mysticism, then why make it a priest and why not make it feel more pragmatic as a warrior? Maybe the answer is they still want it to feel mystic, but not specifically, um, you know, Eastern mystic uh, stereotyped. That's that's honestly, in my opinion, one of the biggest reasons why this refresh is happening is there's a lot of there's a lot of kind of culturally insensitively dubious stuff in those 2014 books, which may have been, you know, they may have been a step forward for D&D, but they were still kind of behind the times. And especially, that's especially true because uh, the 5e books were in many ways a return to form for D&D. They got a lot of old school fans back on the 5e train after the, you know, the supposed World of Warcraftification of D&D in 4th edition. <laughs> um, 
And so a lot of the the stuff that uh, we might have kind of given the side eye in second edition crept back into 5e in some ways. So, you know, the and some stuff just never left. Like it was it's only been in this decade that people have started to be like, hey, are orcs kind of racist stereotypes? And there's mm-hmm. a, I mean, the, the conversation has been ruthless and brutal from uh, from people who want orcs change, from people who think that uh you know we're being woke crybabies or something or whatever <laughs> and and it's just it's just been a bloodbath and so i am interested and nervous to see what wizards does to accommodate that because having worked with wizards they care a lot about that stuff they they care a lot about being a game that anyone can play and not feel like you know, not that there's no discomfort in it, right? Because they know that conflict is a soul of story of storytelling, but not have this sort of like base level of apathy towards who you are as a person, uh, sure. kind of baked into elements of their game. So, uh, I, I think they have their eye on that really strongly. But they've made they've messed up before, so we'll see what happens. Just the one other thing that jumped out at me in terms of examples of the way that they're. Continuing with some of the changes that they made and pulling back on others, uh, Jeremy Crawford talked about uh, the way subclasses will work, um, maintaining the idea that all subclasses will kick in at third level so that um, those first two classes really sit as almost tutorialized uh, uh, levels for the game. And then uh, after the subclasses all kick in at third, then they will go back to kind of having unique uh, progression between the classes was my understanding rather than every class having their subclass progression kick in at the same level Does that I make like sense that. yeah I like that i do too i don't like stuff feeling too similar or trying mm-hmm. or, or being able to make like a cleric out of a warlock or a, a paladin out of a monk you know or whatever like i i like things having a, an identity of their own um so that's a that's a fine compromise if it makes the game more accessible to new players who um, are all making that choice at the same level. Yeah, I think it would yeah. it makes sense to get your like core cool powers. Just talking from like a beginner gaming perspective, at the same time, because yeah, if you're starting at like level two, then like the wizards are gonna get a cool thing right away, and then everyone else is like, well, where's my cool thing? I don't get my yeah, cool thing. You know, mm-hmm. like I feel like it makes sense to start it. I mean, I'm I'm not a very mechanically minded player, so I don't really understand the arguments for and against having the progression at the same place. Um, but yeah, I just I think it. It, it felt weird to me that you would get some people would get like more powerful earlier than others. And I know it's supposed to kind of balance out as the progression goes on. But when you're a new player, it doesn't you don't necessarily have that kind of thought process in your mind. Totally. Yeah. I agree. Uh, just like I was saying earlier, a lot of 5e was a reaction to fourth edition. And one of the big criticisms of fourth edition is that every class felt the same. Every class had powers. Every class hit milestones at 10th, 20th, and 30th level as you progressed into new uh, tiers, basically. Uh, And 5e kind of tried to bring some asymmetry back into the game, right? Because asymmetry is a source of imbalance. And 4th edition really wanted a balanced game. uh, And people felt they overcorrected. And so then the, you know, the pendulum swung back the other way towards asymmetric balance. And maybe we're going to see a little bit of symmetry creep back in with that standardized start of subclasses, but hopefully keep the asymmetry enough that the classes feel distinct and vibrant and like they have their own identity without so much of that sort of weird friction that comes in when new players are like, but but why why don't I get the cool thing? Why does the cleric get this at first level? 
when I have to wait. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a good compromise between being kind of both. The one thing I don't like, and this is very nit- nitpicky and specific to me, is the explanation they gave the warlock earlier, being that at first level you don't make your pact because uh, you might make a, l- a little pact, you know, early on, and then you make your big pact at third level. <laughs> I'm like, I-, I think a better explanation would be that at the first two levels, the warlock's almost more like a wizard in terms of like they are coming in, they, they found a spark of power, mm. they found an ancient forbidden book that links to a great old one, or they found a copy of like, I don't know, some some demonology book that has allowed mm. them to learn the names of demons. And then at third level, that's when your little spark of power has attracted the attention mm. of a greater mm. being to then invest you with proper power and be like, oh, you think that's cool? Check this out, buddy. Yeah. So I'm hoping the <laughs> the mechanics are um, open enough for that to be the explanation rather than it being like you make a little pact with a fake creature and then a big <laughs> pact with a demon or vice versa. You yeah, know, it, um, would be, it would be good if there is some kind of, yeah, like narrative support for how to implement those uh mechanical changes because like yeah it's the same thing with like the paladin it's like you are a paladin but then you don't swear your oath until third level so what are you doing before that you know like yeah um it would be nice for them to sort of i mean maybe this does exist in the player's handbook and i just haven't read it in so long i've forgotten (laughs) but like you know to have some sort of like here's a way you can approach incorporating this into your game you know if you want to yeah how to approach that stuff yeah the other thing this does really well which I did really badly at my game table was the quest for level three. We've talked about this on the mm. lorecast like ages ago, so I don't know if pe- pe- uh, people will remember. But um, the idea that when everybody's on level two, you run a one shot for each member of your party with a spotlight mm. shined on them that uh, explains how they reach level three. So the paladin has to make vows, but they don't just like happen to make them, you know, one night in the tavern between rests. They have to go to a church or a sacred grove or somewhere specific to be able to make those vows to get to level three. The warlock has to go to a specific place to speak to a representative of their patron to be able to gain power. A wizard needs a specific book kind of added, you know, needs to gain some sort of knowledge, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, so that it really bakes the the subclass into the story of the campaign rather than something that's just chosen because, ah, I don't know, that one. Um, I Randomly I woke up this morning and now I can hide yeah. better than I could before. <laughs> Back in uh, vanilla World of Warcraft, there were class quests that would often mark the gaining of a new ability or even like your final class ability. And they were these real, they were tuned into your class and they were really focused on the the class fantasy of what made your class special, Mm. you know, warlock hunting for their dread steed. So you had to do this grand ritual that bound this undead steed to your command, that sort of thing, or or the paladin steed on the, uh, on the opposite side. And those kind of disappeared at the end of classic because they were so, they were so asymmetrical and they wanted to kind of bring in, you know, the, the tightness of the design, stop making content that only a fraction of the game of the player base is going to see. And I I've kind of been chasing the high of that (laughs) for the rest of my life. And so that idea of the class quest of the, this is something in story that you must do to gain a fundamental part of your class identity is just such a juicy bit of gameplay. Yeah. And whoever cracks the code on that, whoever is able to find a way to like keep manage the spotlight balancing for an entire party of level three characters that all want to get their 
special thing like deserves a Nobel Prize. <laughs> yeah. I, I I want to see someone publish something that like handles that mm. well. Cool. Well, speaking of handling things well, uh, we have a couple of emails. And speaking of classes, uh, we have a couple of emails coming in. Uh, this first one coming in from Sean. Uh, Sean asks, are rogues too selfish? By the way, if you want to email us, podcast at ghostfiregaming.com. Sean asks, are rogues too selfish? Uh, Rogue class features are all focused on the rogue themselves. Uncanny dodge and evasion only help the rogue. The way that they set up their uh, uh, sneak attack abilities only really help the rogue do damage. The fact that they can do this massive burst damage helps the rogue kind of kill steal. Uh, a lot of the time when the paladin might have done like a huge stroke or the paladin's turns coming up and they walk towards the dragon to finish it off, the rogue can kind of snipe it from the side. Um, are rogues too selfish? That that was the thrust of this entire question. Discuss. <laughs> I'd never thought about it that way before. That is interesting. I mean, I guess that the, the crux of it, though, is that you're a party and you're working towards a common goal. So, you know, you might have abilities that individually are like, I'm going to sneak and do a stab. But, like, that is too often to meet a party goal. I think that, you know, speaking of class fantasy, the rogue is selfish. And and I think it's a unity of gameplay and story for the rogue's abilities to all be like, <laughs> no, I'm looking no. out for me, right? It's like, think about Han Solo's, right? Right? Like, I care about one person, me. Uh, and, and then he flies off. Uh, and, and if the rogue is just going to be like, See, the rogue doesn't have no abilities that, inter- that interact with their party members. Sneak attack is often incredibly reliant on your other party members being <laughs> yeah. in position. They, their teamwork is in, you'll help me. Yes, yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. They rely on everyone else, but they don't, you know, they don't give back. Um, and man, if that if that's not the rogue in, in a nutshell, I, I don't know what is. <laughs> Is there any other class that has... I'm trying to think if any of the other classes have that kind of a a vibe. I mean, look, arguably any damage-dealing class... I suppose the difference... Let's look at the Barbarian, right? Mm. The Barbarian, I don't think, has a lot of class features that are communal, although maybe some. You know, if you take Pact of... uh, Not Pact, sorry. If you take Path of the Totem Warrior and go Wolf uh, Pact... Again, I'm just going to keep saying Pact for everything... Uh, then I think you give advantage, like pack tactic style, you give advantage to everybody uh, if you're within five feet of an enemy. That's how mm. it works off the top of my head. But everybody takes bear totem because bear totem's so much better. Um, mm. But the barbarian functions as a tank. Mm. So they get their hit points and they throw themselves right in the thick of the battle. And so that can, even if they're not explicitly doing so, they're still... Um, you know, a benefit to the wizard being able to sit far back behind the barbarian. And then any, any enemy that wants to get at the wizard has to go past the barbarian first. Uh, kind of same with the fighter and especially the um, uh, battlemaster fighter. Let's be mm. honest, the only fighter uh, has a lot of abilities that can give advantage to other people or give attack bonuses to other people. I think the rogue, unlike these other classes, stays away from the battle, hides, doesn't provide any form of even superlative help to to anybody else. I tend to agree. I think there there might be some rogue subclasses that uh, change that up a little bit. Like I think the mastermind rogue has a sort of battle masterish bent to it. And the, the uh, what's it called? The arcane trickster rogue has a few magical tricks up their sleeve that are more teamwork based. But 
absolutely the main chassis of the Rogue. And actually, this gets into a, an interesting topic. Back when Mike Merle still did class design on Twitch, he said something about the Rogue when making a, uh, a subclass for it and said that, look at where the Rogue subclass features are positioned. They're at third, ninth, and 17th level. And there might be a fourth right. one kind of in the middle somewhere. But you wait from third to ninth level to get rogue subclass features. And, uh, and, and he said that that was a deliberate decision on Wizards' part because to them, the, the core chassis of the rogue class was much more important to the class fantasy of your character than its subclasses. Now, we can agree or disagree with that, but that's the, the design intent that went into making the rogue class. And so mm -hmm. I think when we're thinking about, you know, oh, well, there are some unselfish subclasses that might, you know, fix things for a very selfish rogue. Don't don't focus on that too much because it's really the core that matters. And I think our conversation up to this point has actually reflected that very well. We barely mentioned subclasses up till now. If you want to email podcast at ghostfiregaming.com is where to send an email to ask a question or you can comment below this YouTube video if you're watching this on YouTube or ask a question in the Twitch chat. Um, uh, as Jack has done, uh, Jack has asked uh, about random tables in the DMG and running a dungeon from a randomly generated table. Uh, Jack saying that they had to run kind of a bit of an impromptu introductory session uh, for some friends of theirs. And so instead of having anything prepped, they just used the random intra uh, random generation tables in the DMG generating traps and puzzles and all sorts of different things found them to be uh, actually very useful. Uh, have either of you done this or would you feel brave enough to try this because it scares the pants well, off of me? I was going to say, as a chronic over-prepper, that is like my worst nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> it would be a good challenge, though. I should challenge myself to do it because I do really want to improve my on-the-fly skills when DMing and... Um, yeah, but no, I have never, I've never really tried that. <laughs> I feel like I would, because I'm the same as you, Luna, I feel like I would need to prep the random <laughs> things myself, Yeah, <laughs> but, th but they could come at me in any order if I had prepped them. That would be fine yeah. if I could randomly generate the order they came in, but I knew what was in each thing, that would be more okay. I've done that, Ben. I've made my own random encounter tables that basically made up an entire adventure and mm. just kind of went with it. And I got to say, I did not have appreciably more fun than just, you know, running an adventure in a kind of straightforward way. I think random encounter tables, and I'm, uh, this might make some people mad, uh, but I think random encounter tables are, are uh, a relic of a different way of playing D&D <laughs> okay. &D and uh, really do not need to be used anymore. That's my, that's my hot take. That's, for the day. yeah, okay. <laughs> I like, okay. I definitely like that method of like, cause I'll run a random, I'll run random encounters, but yeah, I've written all the encounters myself and to me and made sure that they have seeds of the story in the random encounter. But I've never really, yeah. I think for Tomb of Annihilation, maybe I did run a few, just like I rolled on the, the D100 table or whatever and, and ran that encounter. But uh, it doesn't feel as satisfying to me as like making sure that it, you know, we, especially when you have a, maybe you only play two hours a week. Like I do, it's like, we got a limited time. Like I want everything to feel like it matters. Like it, there's, mm. there's something there. Um, but for some reason running like a random wilderness encounter doesn't scare me as much as like running a random dungeon, like having to know where the traps are and like where the secret door is and stuff like that feels more involved to me for some reason. Uh, I think I agree because mm -hmm. I, I use random tables and again, they're tables that I've largely written myself 
for wilderness exploring between, you know, if they're going from A to B, if they're going from town to dungeon, let's just throw a random encounter in the middle so it feels like they're going there. And and those random encounters can be a combat encounter with like a bunch of goblins that way lay them on the way, or it could be as small as a bear trap because, you know, there are hunters in the area that leave traps for deer and the dwarf happens to have stood in one and now they're stuck there for the next 10 minutes while the party try to get the, the trap off their leg. But I think the difference with the dungeon is that the dungeon needs to fit together, you know, whether it's the wilderness, if it's a forest, it's just these could be happening in regions. They don't have to puzzle piece fit together in a way that like geographically makes sense. Does that does that make sense? Random encounters are just, you know, they're story beats and a really good DM can string disconnected story beats into a, a logical plot. Or, or even not even like a modern three act structure sort of plot, but you know, uh, an episodic sort of serialized plot, like you might see in a chapter of like the, the Hobbit or something, right? Where something happens that gives you a kind of tone of the area, like yeah, a bear trap. There's hunters in the area, mm-hmm. but then if the next thing that happens isn't another indication of either the hunters or their prey, you no longer have a flowing story here. You just have some kind of disconnected events. And if you want to play a game that is more, you know, that is realistic insofar as it's kind of like these these are just things that happen in the world and you've got to deal with it, then that's one thing. But I think even that kind of story is helped by a subtle dose of narrative cohesion. Mm. Because like our, our our brains are trained to like stories. If you can find a way to tell a story in a way that feels natural, you should do it. And I don't think random encounter tables are particularly conducive to natural storytelling. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it really depends on your style of play. Like if you're playing a more, yeah, combat focused hack and slash, then like I can see it would fit really well and it would mm-hmm. probably reduce a lot of the prep time for the DM. But yeah. Uh, Luna, I have uh, a question for you. I hope you don't mind me asking. What's your cat's name? Because I can just see the top of their ears <laughs> peeking into frame. This is, uh, oh, she's going to leave because we've perceived her. Uh, we've this mentioned is, her. This is uh, Marigold. I've got another one, Marigold. Clementine, but I don't know where she um, this is very rare. She never sits on my lap. Like she does not like to be pat or touched very much. So this right. is a, you're being blessed, everybody on the podcast. The rare occasion. It's a, it's a rare blessing. Um, well, if folks want to receive that rare blessing again, potentially in <laughs> one of your videos, Twitch streams, where can folk find you? Uh, you can find me everywhere on the internet at Lou Boffin. Uh, I stream on Twitch regularly. I have a YouTube channel about Critical Role. Uh, and I am also on Twitter, um, sometimes. Less and have less you, these days. <laughs> have you? Yeah, me too. Have you played um, or tried or had a look at Candela Obscura yet? Just quickly as a I've, resident. Um, I've, uh, I've read a lot of the Quick Start Guide, um, not all of it, and uh, I've watched the first episode, but I haven't actually had a chance to play the game yet. I had a a game planned, and then you know we had to cancel it because of sure. as you do when yep. you're scheduling. Um, so yeah, I haven't had a chance to play it yet, um, but I'm I'm intrigued. Yeah, I'd be I'd be intrigued at your notes after yes. the fact. Um, uh, it, it, it is one of the, the third-party games that has caught my interest genuinely as well, where I'm going like, hmm, I might like to try that. I reckon I could read that quick start guide and play it tonight if I wanted to. It is a lovely quick start guide. It's very nice to read. Like, it's all laid out very, very nicely. Yeah. yeah. I've enjoyed it. Um, uh, well, you can find the Eldritch Lawcast. We're here every Monday at 7 o'clock Eastern Standard Time or 4 p.m. Uh, 7 p.m., I should say, or 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. 9 a.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time or 
uh, wherever else you happen to be in the world. I know we have people joining us from the UK and all around. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us. We're also on YouTube every single week. Um, I'm never good at doing this stuff. Our handles are below our names if you want to find us on Twitter, although honestly we don't hang out there much anymore. Um, so good luck. Anyway, we'll see you next week. I've been Ben Byrne here with James Haig, Luna LaBoffin, and we will catch you next week. Bye. 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 Bye.